If you would turn with me in uh, the Bible to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to read the, the first 23 verses, 1 Samuel chapter 14 and reading 1 to 23. This is God's word to us. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, and son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other one was Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other one on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look. Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. The man of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. The watchman of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more, 
So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. We do ask that God would bless to us this reading from his word. Let's unite together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you that you speak to us. Your word has its power of old. It still has meaning and purpose for us in these moments, in these days. May you speak with clarity. May we respond in obedience. May your voice be heard. May your work be done to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. Let's reflect on where we are in this story. Jonathan had a minimal victory over the Philistine garrison at Geba. The arch enemies of Israel in response had amassed all their forces to put their pesky neighbors in their place. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and so many foot soldiers as could not be counted. They were poised to wipe Israel off the face of the world map. At one time, the, the Philistines had been happy to assimilate their uh, Israeli neighbors into one conglomerate nation. But now they were not intent on assimilating so much as annihilating. Because God in past had purposed that during the, the years when Samson was judge in Israel, that he would establish this great enmity between Philistines on one side and Israelites on the other. And so the fighters of Saul's army are cringing in fear. At least these who had not as yet fled for their lives. They were hiding in every nook and cranny, anywhere they could find shelter. But not everyone had carred away. And as we turn to this passage, I want you to see with me at first glance this audacious faith of Jonathan. Jonathan's audacious faith. Verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Again, we've made mention of this a number of times, but we have to understand the nature of Saul's heart. He's a man, his leadership is marked by procrastination. As Dale Ralph Davis comments, boldness was not Saul's forte these days. Did I quite like the imagery of the alternate reading of verse 2, which says not that he was in the pomegranate cave, but he was sitting under the pomegranate tree. It's almost as if he's uh, too lazy to get up and pluck the fruit for himself, and he's lying there hoping it will fall on him to save him the bother. And pomegranate was 
in those days, a, a fruit that was not just for the ordinary person. It was a luxury food. It, 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 it was sort of more Marks and Spencers than Asda. It, it was not part of the staple diet of the ordinary people. But in a sense, this was the author giving us a reflection as to the nature of Saul's heart in those moments. He was so much more concerned about his personal comforts than confronting his enemy. Saul is the procrastinator, whereas Jonathan is the initiator or maybe even the agitator. He doesn't need any excuse to attack the Philistines. They are the enemies of his people. They are the enemies of his God. They are the uncircumcised. They're outside of God's covenant community. And this is his mandate for launching his attack against them. And the the writer gives us this very sorry picture of Saul's situation. He's a disgraced king. We saw that in previous weeks. His dynasty has gone. He's been rejected by God, and he's keeping company with a disgraced priest, Ahijah. His priestly line has also been rejected by God. And there they are together, and and they don't even know what's happening in the nation. Jonathan is off on this escapade, and Saul is totally unaware of it. So here's the context for Jonathan's display of audacious faith. The opposition is overwhelming. The the difficulties are overwhelming. So he has an overwhelming problem, but also he has an impassable place. Uh, they are in a very difficult place. We get this description of these two rocky crags. They're so distinct. They're so well known. They, ha- they have names. Some of you are familiar walking in the morns and you'll, you'll walk up the trassy track and you'll bore your friends and say, well, that's a truncated spur over there. It's called Spilak. And you know the names of certain rock formations because uh, they're so distinct. They're so outstanding. They're given names. Well, these two rocky outcrops are called Bozes, which means slippery, and Sene, which means thorny. No one in their right mind would ever think of launching an attack in this particular topography. But of course, God has a track record of using people who might be considered not to be in their right mind. We read at the start of our service those words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul reminds us that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Or again, that familiar verse from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, where we read that it's not, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's what we're going to see being demonstrated here in our text. And look then to verse 6. The second half of this verse, if you haven't already underlined it or highlighted it in your Bible, it's worth it. 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many 
or by few. Now, these are the early years of Saul's reign. Saul was a young man when he came to the throne. And Jonathan is his son, which makes him probably in his teens. And his armor bearer is called by Saul, the young man. So how young is the armor bearer? But they launch off into battle. During the past week, I was listening to the first section of a a tutorial, which is called the the High Impact Leader Course. Going to make a high impact. Don't know what that means, but I at least watched the first session by a Canadian pastor called Carrie Newhoff. And the punchline of that first session was this. Abandon balance, embrace passion. Abandon balance, embrace passion. Newhoff claims, most leaders who accomplish things aren't balanced people. They are passionate people. And here in this incident, we see Saul portrayed to us as living the balanced life. He has a goal of self-preservation. But Jonathan portrays for us someone who embraces passion. And he displays this audacious faith. And we must know that this is the call of God to us. That if we would be his followers, we must embrace passion. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 25, which says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To this we are called as Christ's followers. Therefore, we must learn from Jonathan what empowered him to live with such a a self-forgetful passion. And it's clear to see that the basis for Jonathan's audacious faith is this, that he knew of and trusted in the promises of God. He believed in the covenant faithfulness of God. And thus it will ever be. It is conviction about God that produces expectation of God. Conviction about God produces expectation of God. And there are two things that are very clear in that little verse 6. That God is a saving God and that God is a sovereign God. And I want to reflect about those for a few moments. Firstly, God is a saving God. Is that your conviction about God? Do you believe that he is a God who saves? Do you expect him to save? Has he saved your soul? Conviction about God produces expectation of God, and this leads to effective service for God. What's your conviction about God? Charles Spurgeon was a a passionate man. You never heard him speak, but you may have read his sermons. Once when he was preaching, he said this. He said, I do abhor from my heart that continual whining of some men about their own little church as the remnant, the few that are saved. They're always dwelling upon straight gates and narrow ways, and upon what they conceive to be a truth, that but few shall enter heaven. 
I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. And I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, it is said that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I've never read that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in hell. Do you step out in confidence? Do you live your life with this eager anticipation, believing that God is a God who saves and expecting to see his saving power on display in you and around you? Dale Ralph Davis notes that some people are naturally optimistic. They don't know any better. But faith, Faith can arise even when there is no reason for opti- or where no reason for optimism exists. But Jonathan's conviction about God produces in him this expectation of God. And he has this audacious faith, and yet in no way does he dictate to God what God must do. There is no hint here of a name it and claim it theology. That turns God into some kind of heavenly butler who's at our beck and call. We click our fingers and expect him to act. Jonathan states, without any presumption, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For Jonathan recognizes that in the work of salvation, what matters is God's sovereignty. God is a sovereign God, not just a saving God, but also a sovereign God. Jonathan's faith is secure, but it is not presumptuous. Remember those three young Hebrews who stood before the enraged Babylonian emperor? In Daniel 3, 16, we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three young men knew with great confidence that their God could save, but in no way did they have the arrogance to tell him that he must save. And Jonathan's audacious faith is a a faith that turns him to God, but doesn't turn him into God, telling God what he must do. We can be sure that God saves. We can be confident that God saves many. But with our limited vision, we cannot know those whom God will save or when he will save them. The Apostle Paul reminds us that God alone makes these choices. He is sovereign in the apportioning of his saving grace. Romans 9, 15 and 16, Paul writes, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. We've noticed or noted 
Jonathan's audacious faith, based on the knowledge that God saves and God is sovereign. But secondly, I want to notice with you his armor-bearer's ardent friendship. His ardent friendship. John Wesley once wrote, Set yourself on fire with passion, and people will come from miles to see you burn. And when you embrace passion, you will not be alone. You will inspire others to follow in your way. Professor Tom Wright, I quoted him a couple of times this morning. He's, he's one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. And in a, a recent interview, he was asked how he of his generation had, had been able to maintain his faith in Jesus Christ when so many others at that time had turned their backs on it, both on Christ and the church. And his answer I found deeply moving. It touched me, and, and I'm sure it will speak to a number of you as well. Tom Wright said this. Now, of course, a great many people who grew up with a with that background, the same background as him, chucked it when they became teenagers. And for whatever reason, I didn't. It might have happened, but it didn't in my case. And I think that was partly because I ran into the Scripture Union Boys Camps movement, which was lively in Britain in those days. I think it still is. But where we would be taken off into the Scottish Highlands, and we would go climbing and sailing and canoeing and goodness knows what, And then have very good, brief camp prayers morning and evening with short talks from the Bible. And then some friendly follow-up from the leaders who were the kind of people that a young teenager looks up to. They were sporty. They were intelligent. They were friendly. They were fun. I was very fortunate in that that helped me to make a transition into a kind of different dimension that I'd had from my home church. That I think the balance of the two. I rather stayed in ordinary old-fashioned church. And then this much more evangelical, Bible-oriented movement that I became part of in my team. Leaders that young men could look up to, writes N.T. Wright. We've heard from Diane about the the significance of mentors in the REACH movement. Young people needing input from adults who are consistent and caring and above all, represent Christ to them. N.T. Wright has given decades of God-glorifying service because he was surrounded by good example. And the passion for the glory of God in the life of Jonathan motivates his armor-bearer to follow him into battle. And Jonathan invites him to engage in what surely was a suicide mission. And he gives this resounding answer of affirmation. Verse 7. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. We should add, and body too. He's willing to lay his life on the line for this cause. And here's a challenge to all of us. To ask yourself, who am I following? Who is leading me through life? What great calling has been set before me that by God's grace and to God's glory, I am seeking to aspire to? Some of you might have heard of Jim Collins, a multi-million selling author. 
He has written his best-selling book. is from. It's called Good to Great. And in that book, and maybe some of you have read it, he he talks about what are big, hairy, audacious goals. That's times when, when businesses no longer settle for mediocrity or even for incremental growth, but set themselves these seemingly ridiculous targets to which at which they aim and to which they aspire. And one of the reasons why there is a, a deficit in discipleship within the church of Jesus Christ is not that people are being asked too much, but they're being required to do too little. You know, there is truth in that SAS motto, at least in the spiritual life, that who dares wins. What do you dare to do for Jesus? What do you dare to do for his kingdom? What is he calling you to step into as an act of faith? As we read of of Jonathan's plan at first sight, it doesn't seem to be the smartest one. His tactic is to step out into the open where the enemy can see him. The enemy have control of the high ground. They're at the foot of the hill. It really wasn't a very good way to make an approach and to start an attack. Maybe some of you have toured in Israel. If you've been around Galilee, maybe ventured into the Golan Heights. And if you've been there, you can uh, picture the topography and, uh, and think about the events of the Six-Day War. It made no sense that the Israeli army (coughs) by the Jordan would uh, seek to launch an attack upon the Syrian forces who were up the escarpment some 500 meters in elevation. They had all the advantage. But the Israeli army drove them back to the gates of Damascus and called them to surrender within two days. And Jonathan has a plan, verse 10. A strange plan, he says, if they say, come up to us, Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. Was he putting out some kind of fleece here? Was he putting God to the test? Well, I don't think so. I think Jonathan had a a tactical interpretation of events. I believe that that Jonathan could discern in the response of the Philistines overconfidence that he knew would lead to their vulnerability and ultimately to their defeat. Verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. Note this armor-bearer. He was not just some passive spectator. He didn't say to Jonathan, don't worry, I'll, I'll be praying for you at a safe distance behind a rock. No, he answered the call of his master. He followed through, even though there was great vulnerability, even though the likelihood of death, humanly speaking, was high. And to this, Jesus calls his followers. There's an old chorus which goes like this. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Audacious faith, ardent friendship, finally awe-filled fear. Awe-filled fear. The boldness of these two men triggers huge panic in the ranks of the Philistines and leads to a massive slaughter. Verse 15, uh, I'm reading the, the literal translation a little bit. There was panic, there was trembling in the camp, in the field and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled 
And the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic, or, or trembling is the word used three times there. Did these Philistines more than uh, number the grains of sand on the shore? Did this army tremble, panic? Were they in fear because two men attacked them? No. No, they trembled because clearly God was at work in this incident. As John Knox, the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism, said that one man with God is always the majority. God was at work. His mighty power, his holy presence causes people to tremble. We haven't time this evening to look at what happens with Saul and his foolish decisions. God willing, we'll return to this in the new year. But, but for now, just uh, jump to the final verse that we read together, verse 23, where all that has unfolded is summed up like this. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. The Lord saved Israel. It's clear who won this battle. It's, we're left with no doubt as to the source of the saving power in these moments. 